0: Today's lecture four is revisibility and conceptual change: Carnap versus Quine. Thanks very much, Scott, and uh, welcome back, everyone. The last uh, few times, I've been motivating, articulating, and defending what I've called scrutability theses. Theses, roughly, that all truths about the world are entailed, maybe a priori entailed, by truths in a very limited vocabulary, the vocabulary of a scrutability base. And I've argued that uh, this can be seen as a descendant in some ways of Carnap's project in the logical structure of the world. Today, I'm going to be focusing on both on some foundational questions about the scrutability project and at the same time... On some applications. The focus is going to be on issues about the a priori and on issues about meaning. Uh, the primary aim, I guess, is going to be to um, focus on Quine's arguments about analyticity and a priori in two dogmas of empiricism and defend the notion of uh, the a priori against Quine's arguments. This is foundationally important for the project because the notion of the a priori plays a, plays a key role. If Quine's arguments are successful, then this notion can't do the work for me that I want it to do. The secondary aim, though, is to uh, investigate a certain kind of application of the project to uh, questions in semantics and questions about meaning, in particular, to look at the way in which the scrutability thesis can be used to introduce a certain kind of notion of meaning, the notion of an intention within the scrutability framework, which can do interesting work. And I also want to examine the interaction between meaning and between certain diachronic principles of, uh, of rationality. Now, I, I see that in the uh, the title, I somewhat inadvertently set up the whole thing as a Kind of prize fight between uh, between Carnap and Quine. So, with, uh, with some apologies to the uh, to the dignity of, uh, of all concerned, in the uh, in the red corner representing the, uh, the logical empiricists, we have our hero Rudolf Carnap, uh, born in Ronsdorf, Germany, trained in Jena and Berlin, sometime of Vienna, Prague, and Chicago. Constructor of the world <laughs> unifier of science, slayer of metaphysics, fresh off a victory over heidegger in his, uh, in his last bout. Uh, his current project is to uh, is to set the notion of meaning on a stable scientific foundation in the uh, in the blue corner we have. Willard Van Orman Quine, for today's purposes, the bad guy. Representing the, uh, the American naturalists, the youngster out of uh, Akron, Ohio, trained in Oberlin and these days of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Naturalizer of epistemology, slayer of modality. Uh, recently off of victory over Mainong, uh, his current project involves throwing the whole notion of meaning uh, into question and arguing that it's not a terribly useful notion at all. Now, Quine and Carnap, uh, and around the time in which we're setting the scenes, are actually great friends, unified by uh, a background pragmatism and empiricism and unified by a respect for logic and science as arbiters of matters philosophical. But still, they had some famously strong disagreements about a number of topics. Ah, modality and the nature of existence, for example. Perhaps most famously and most importantly for present purposes about the importance and the nature of meaning. So where it's 1951. Uh, the year of publication of uh, Quine's article, Two Dogmas of Empiricism, often referred to as perhaps the most important article in philosophy in the 20th century, certainly one of the most important and influential articles. And Quine's article, Two Dogmas of Empiricism, is quite clearly not just directed at empiricism in general, but at logical empiricism, the movement spearheaded by Carnap, and it's quite clear that Carnap is his primary target. Um, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, for a long time, the conventional wisdom on these matters is that Quine was the, uh, was the victor in this particular bout over Carnap. Now, maybe in recent years, the, uh, the assessment has shifted a little. In any case, one thing I want to do today is to argue that, uh, that Carnap's side of the matter is sometimes underappreciated. And the tools uh, introduced by Carnap in the years after two dogmas can really be used to gain some considerable purchase against Quine's arguments. But the two dogmas of empiricism, the two dogmas of logical empiricism with which Quine is concerned are first belief in an analytic-synthetic distinction, a distinction between um, truths which are true in virtue of meaning, all bachelors are unmarried, and uh, truths which are not true in virtue of meaning, you know, perhaps presumably in virtue of the world, like there's a bottle on this lectern. That's the first dogma. The second dogma is uh, what Quine calls reductionism, roughly phenomenal reductionism, that every meaningful statement is equivalent to a statement about experience. Now, I'm going to focus on the, uh, the first dogma. I don't have a brief at all for the, uh, for the second dogma, I'm going to focus on Quine's most influential arguments against the first dogma, especially construed as arguments against an a priori a posteriori distinction, as the arguments have often been construed. It's interesting that um, you know, we saw that actually, for the purposes of Quine, clearly reads the Aufbau as being committed. To an analytic-synthetic distinction, we saw back in the first lecture that, interestingly and surprisingly, that's not explicitly the case in the Aufbau. But it's certainly true that Carnap, in later works, is committed to an analytic-synthetic distinction. It's also arguable about the extent to which the Aufbau, the project of the Aufbau, is really committed to phenomenal reductionism. Carnap uh, approaches his project in that way, but he says um, there are many alternative ways to approach it, and that's not clearly an essential property. Of his approach. But in any case, um, analyticity and a priori, analyticity is very important to Kynem's project, a priori is very important to mine. Quine's arguments have been widely read as significant challenges to those distinctions, so that's what I'm going to take as the starting point. Now, the first few sections of Two Dogmas of Empiricism argue that analyticity can be understood only via certain cognate notions, such as those of meaning definition, and synonymy, leading to a kind of circle. Now, this argument, I think, is widely regarded as interesting, but perhaps inconclusive. Maybe it's even widely rejected. Most philosophers, I think, have come to the view that circles like this are very common with philosophically important notions, causation, consciousness, freedom, value, and existence. The mere existence of such a circle shouldn't be taken as throwing the notions into question. Section 5 of Two Dogmas argues that sentences can't be associated with, uh, with sets of confirmatory experiences because of the underdetermination of theory by evidence. This material really is specific, I think, to the second dogma, to the uh, program of phenomenal reductionism. And the criticisms are very much specific to the project, to kind project in the AFBAU, as I went over in the first lecture. So I'm going to set that part of Two Dogmas aside As well, I think it's fair to say that the most influential part of Two Dogmas, by far, is the fairly short final section, section six, especially the uh, the first two paragraphs. In the uh, in the first paragraph, he articulates a certain positive picture on which the totality of knowledge, belief, is a man-made fabric, a field of force that impinges on experience only along the edges and where conflicts with experience necessitate a certain kind of holistic adjustment on the interior of the field with much left open. Now, the arguments in this first paragraph, I think, are largely directed at an Aufbau-style view, a kind of phenomenal reductionism, and the second dogma. It's really in the the second paragraph that the rubber hits the road where the analytic-synthetic distinction is concerned, so I'll read that out here. If this view is right... It's misleading to speak of the empirical content of an individual statement, especially if it be a statement at all remote from the experiential periphery of the field. Furthermore, it becomes folly to seek a boundary between synthetic statements, which hold contingently on experience, and analytic statements, which hold come what may. Any statement can be held true come what may if we make drastic enough adjustments elsewhere in the system. Even a statement very close to the periphery can be held true in the face of recalcitrant experience by pleading hallucination or by amending certain statements of the kind called logical laws. Conversely, by the same token, no statement is immune to revision. Revision, even of the logical law of the excluded middle, has been proposed as a means of simplifying quantum mechanics. And what difference is there in principle between such a shift And the shift whereby Kepler superseded Ptolemy, or Einstein-Newton, or Darwin-Aristotle. So the arguments here clearly go to the heart, clearly for for Quine's purposes, are at the heart of his arguments against the analytic-synthetic distinction. And I take it that the the crucial points, well there are two of them, called Q1 and Q2. Q1 says, uh, any statement can be held true, come what may if we make drastic enough adjustments elsewhere in the system. And Q2 says no statement is immune to revision. And there's meant to be an argument um, from here, either to the conclusion that no sentences are analytic, or perhaps a priori, or that no principal distinction can be drawn between those that are analytic and a priori, or those that are not. At least the arguments, I mean, the arguments are explicitly cast in terms of the analytic. Many people have read them in terms of the a priori. Now, I think it's fair to say that it's not totally obvious how the argument from Q1 and Q2 to those conclusions is meant to go. I mean, if we perhaps if we, underst- if we understood in the background that a statement is analytic, if and only if it can be held true come what may, or that, an arg- that a statement is a priori if and only if it's immune to revision, then it's fairly clear. Um, how an argument of this sort might go. At least it's fairly traditionally held by by some people that a priori statements are immune to revision. If so, you can see how an argument from Q2 might go. Now, there's been a number of different strategies for responding to Quine here. I mean, these arguments have been very, clearly very influential, and there's been a couple of influential strategies in response. Perhaps the most influential in some ways is the argument that concedes Q2 to Quine and says, well, look, we can still have an a priori a posteriori distinction as long as we disentangle a priori from unrevisability. After all, we don't hold a posteriori knowledge to a standard of unrevisability. You can have empirical justification that's defeasible. Likewise, the same may be true for a priori justification. So I think that let's distinguish a priori versus a posteriori from defeasible versus indefeasible. I think that point is correct as far as it goes, but I'm not sure it goes to the heart of the matter, at least for my purposes. I'm inclined to think that there is a notion of the a priori, what I called last time the notion of the conclusive a priori, that does have a certain kind of link to uh, something like indefeasibility or certainty, one that offers perhaps the possibility of some kind of certainty, at least on ideal reflection. I can't claim to have establish that here. On the other hand, if one went with this standard response to Quine, this would in effect be to concede that Quine was right, at least about that notion. There's no notion of, uh, of certainty on ideal a priori reflection to be had. I think Quine's arguments don't establish even that much. So I'm inclined to focus on a second style of response associated in part with, uh, with Grice and Strawson, and in part with, uh, as I'll say, as, I'll, as we'll see, with Carnap so, um, I guess Grice and Strawson's response is actually of, uh, of local interest. I uh, gather that Quine presented the arguments of two dogmas when visiting Oxford in, uh, in 53 and uh, in 54, and that uh, Grice and Strawson were in the audience and said, OK, well, this can't quite be right, and wrote their uh, article in response uh, in defense of a dogma. The most famous arguments in that article, I think, are those which say, well, look, there's a distinction here that we commonly make, therefore, there must be something. To it, I'm actually more interested in a point they make quite briefly in the last couple of pages of the article where they say roughly, well, it's true that any sentence can be held true, come what may. And no sentence is immune to revision. But this holding true and revision will often involve changing the meaning of the sentence. If so, it has no bearing on the status of the original sentence as analytic or a priori. So, say you take a sentence that's traditionally taken to be a priori, like 2 plus 2 is 4. Well, it's true that that sentence is revisable in principle. If, say, you revise the meaning of the numeral 4 to mean 5, then that sentence will then roughly express the proposition that 2 plus 2 is 5, and it'll be revised. But on the face of it, the possibility of that kind of meaning change has no bearing on the status of the original sentence, 2 plus 2 is 4, as analytic or a priori. So at this point, I think the Quinean has a couple of responses. One is to say that the appeal to meaning is, uh, here is roughly circular. Hey, well, I'm throwing the notion of meaning into question. You can't appeal to it here. Well, I think one could question the strength of that, uh, of that response. It's roughly to make the kind of move that Quine makes in sections one through four, saying, hey, you're relying on a circle of notions here. One might argue that for the same reasons that people have found that argumentative strategy uncompelling. This strategy is likewise uncompelling. But maybe there's a more interesting strategy in the, uh, in the vicinity, one that we might see as a kind of challenge to the proponent of the analytic or the a priori. And this is to say, well, look, there's just no principled basis for classifying some cases as involving conceptual change, change in meaning, and others as involving conceptual constancy. Here I use conceptual change roughly synonymously with meaning change. There's conceptual change in a sentence when expressions in the sentence express different concepts at different times. And the Quinean says, well, you say some of these changes involve conceptual change and some don't. Well, I challenge you to find a principled distinction between the two. Again, it's not obvious to what extent the opponent is committed to being able to draw, say, an independent distinction in productive terms. Still, I think the challenge is a very interesting one to take up. And perhaps it's less widely known than it might be that Kynap in fact, took up the challenge Um, in his article from the 1950s, Meaning and Synonymy in Natural Language. So what I'm going to do in what follows is to investigate the prospects for drawing a principled distinction here using tools drawn in part from that paper of Carnaps, in part from the scrutability framework that I've been developing, and in part from Bayesian confirmation theory. theory. And I'm going to argue that these tools collectively actually um, can be used to, I think, to provide a reasonably um, powerful response to the Quinean challenge and also to, uh, to set notions of meaning onto a, To shed some light on interesting notions of meaning um, in the vicinity. So, um, first of all, I'll to summarise the core then of meaning and synonymy in natural language. This paper of Carnap's. Um, You know, maybe one reason why this paper is, is not always read as one of the canonical responses to Quine is that Carnap hardly talks about Quine. In this, uh, in this article, there's just a footnote or two where he mentions Quine's challenges, people who have challenged the notion of meaning as inherently fuzzy or confused, and says he's setting it up onto a uh, trying to set it onto a scientific footing. But it's quite clear that uh, that a response to Quine is at least in part is at least part of what's intended. So Karnap kind of in this article, says that he's setting out a scientific procedure for analyzing meaning and synonymy. The meaning of an expression is its intention. The intentions associated with a term are determined, to a first approximation, by a subject's linguistic dispositions. So, say you have a subject who uses a term like fed. We investigate the intention of a term such as fed by presenting subjects with descriptions of possible cases and asking for a judgment about what fed applies to. We can then represent intentions as functions from possible cases to extensions. So say we're looking for the extension of a term like bottle and present them with a description of a scenario and say, well, in this scenario, what are the bottles? Um, present them with a description of a scenario and say, well, in this desc- scenario, what are the universities? Or if you do it with sentences rather than, um, rather than with singular terms or substantial expressions, it's even more straightforward. Take a sentence like, you know, Um, the morning star is a planet, present subject with specifications of scenarios and say, in this scenario, is the morning star a planet? Subject will say, yeah, in this scenario, yes. In this scenario, no. And you can represent a semantic value for the sentence and intention um, as a function from possible cases, scenarios, to extensions determined by the subject's linguistic dispositions. Now, this is already... I think, for those of you who have been at the uh, the previous talk, something which is very congenial to the scrutability framework I've been developing. So here's one thought. Given a sentence S and a possible scenario T specified using something like one of those PQTI sentences I've been talking about that specify the physical and phenomenal and so on characterization of the world, well, the thought was that, you know, given, say, PQTI for the actual world, Subjects are in a position to make conditional judgments, say that the evening star is a planet, given some different PQTI sentence, call it PQTI star, specifying a different world, the subject might make a different judgment. If that one's the case, the evening star is not a planet. So... Here's one thought. You take a subject having just uttered a sentence like the evening star is a planet. Then you give them the, uh, the PQTI sentence. I mean, Carnap actually says that, well, you could do this linguistically. Maybe you could even give them pictures or give them a, uh, give them a movie. I mean, for present purposes, there's a one natural thought. Why not give the subject a cosmoscope? You know, uh, just uh, say, okay, is the evening star a planet? Well, here's a scenario specified to you. Using a cosmoscope, use this cosmoscope to make a conditional judgment about whether S is true if T prime that specification of the scenario is true, and then the subject will make a conditional judgment. And then we get a notion of, so far, a fairly flat-footed operationalistic notion of intentions associated with uses of sentences. Then we can say, okay, well, now a sentence is analytic. Kleinert says this. A sentence is analytic if its intention is true at all possible cases. Two expressions are synonymous, if and only if they have the same Intention, and it's very natural to hold. Carnap doesn't discuss conceptual change very much in this article, um, but it's very natural to apply it as following: an expression undergoes conceptual change between t1 and t2 if and only if its intention at t1 differs from its intention at t2. So, there's Carnap's framework for uh, for intentions. I think what you can, for those of you who know Carnap's uh, book Meaning and Necessity, where he develops a modal framework for thinking about uh, for thinking about meaning you can see meaning and synonymy in natural language as a kind of attempt to naturalize the intentional framework of meaning and necessity to ground these intentions in roughly operational or behavioral facts and and thereby to uh, to use these intentions to vindicate some of the properties of Fregean senses as he argues in meaning and necessity likewise i'm inclined to think one can take the scrutability framework as providing a kind of grounding of, um, of intentions. Not quite in operational and behavioristic terms, as we'll see, but in more broadly epistemological terms. And the notion of intentions you get from the scrutability framework can, likely, can likewise be seen to play some of the role of senses and thoughts as articulated by Frege. More on that in a second. But first, what do you say? just say you've got this fairly simple Carnapian analysis. Well, how are we going to use that to uh, analyze the Quinean argument? I think we'll just uh, start with a Quinean case. So let's take uh, Quine's claim, Q1, that uh, any statement can be held true, come what may. And let's take, uh, take an example. Okay, so I guess we w- what we want to do is to pick a statement which looks like a paradigm of a contingent synthetic statement. So we won't go with a, you know, all bachelors are unmarried. How about we go with... A, Fred asserting at time t1, all bachelors are tidy. Now, I take it, prima facie, this statement, is certainly contingent and synthetic. In fact, it's almost certainly false. There are, there are um, I think, there are counterexamples in the very immediate vicinity, as, uh, as my parents, who are here in the audience today, can, uh, can attest. Um, so, um, so prima facie, the statement's contingent, synthetic, maybe even false. Still, uh, Fred could hold on to it in face of any apparently countervailing evidence by adjusting relevant ancillary claims in Laquanian fashion. So just say Fred, is he claims, all bachelors are untidy, and he's presented at T2 with an untidy, unmarried man. Well, and Fred can say, well, he's no bachelor. Bachelors have to be over 30. And he's only 25. He's an adjusted and ancillary claim, therefore gets to hold on to the original thesis we face faced a time T3 now with a 35-year-old with a dirty apartment. Fred says, well, look, that's no counter-evidence. He's tidy. Look at his well-organized sock drawer. And on you go on for the change of the mancillary claims about what it is to be tidy. By making moves of this kind, it's quite clear that Fred can hold on to the original sentence. The question, of course, is whether this involves, in some essential way, a certain kind of conceptual change. So does the move from T1 to T2, or from T1 to T3, essentially involve conceptual change? Well, on the current framework, as specified by Kynab, it does so only if the intention for all bachelors are untidy changes between T1 and T2. So let's think about this for a second. Let B be the sentence, all bachelors are tidy. Let C be a scenario with, you know, like the scenario presented at T2, with 25 year old unmarried men in dirty apartments. By Kynap's criterion, the intention of B is true at C at time T2. At time T2, the subject is presented with C and they say B is true there. The crucial question, though, is is the intention of B true at that scenario? At T1, before the subject ever got the evidence that this scenario was actual, was the subject's was the intention of the subject of the sentence for the subject true there? So here's the diagnostic question. At time T1, does Fred judge that P is true in the possible case specified by D? The specification of that scenario? So for example, at time T1, would Fred accept the claim? if there are 25 year old unmarried men with dirty apartments and so on out there then all bachelors are tidy or is it the case that fred would say look i don't think i think all bachelors are tidy i don't think there are 25 year old unmarried men with dirty apartments out there but if there are any then some bachelors are not tidy okay so two possibilities at t1 uh, fred would accept that claim that is he, Fred would accept, you know, basically conditional on there are 25-year-old unmarried men with dirty apartments, Fred would say, okay, well, if that's the case, all bachelors are tidy all the same. Well, if that's the case, then there's no, there's no change, or at least there need be no change in the intention of b be between T1 and T2. It's just that Fred has had a fairly non-standard intention for bachelor all along, one that requires, for example, that bachelors be over 30. This is what we call a prefigured case, what we might call a prefigured case. Fred's judgment at T2 is reflected in his dispositions to make conditional judgments regarding possible cases at T1. The verdict of T2 was already prefigured in the dispositions at T1. If no, and I think it's a much more plausible reading of the case, that if Fred is a standard user of the term bachelor, the conditional judgment at T1 will be no, After all, Fred hasn't had the need to make any of those ancillary changes yet. Well, if no, then by Carnap's criteria, the intention of B changes between T1 and T2. This is what we might call a post figured case. The judgment at T2 is not reflected in the speaker's dispositions at T1. So that's then the Carnapian criterion, I think, for handling. Cases of conceptual change. less the natural application, I think, of Kynap's framework here anyway. Post-figured judgments involving the... When revision of sentences involves post-figured judgments, that entails conceptual change. When it doesn't, then there's no need to postulate conceptual change. Now, Carnap's account here, as presented, is a fairly flat-footed one. And there's you know, all kinds of issues you might... Uh, you might bring up to try to, uh, try to refine it. So I'll go over a few of those issues here. And I think what actually turns out to be the case is by various refinements, you can see something like the scrutability framework is helping um, in elaborating a more refined version of Carnap's account. The first problem is the obvious problem that subjects can make mistakes. Just say you've got a you know, complicated mathematical claim or even a somewhat complicated arithmetical claim like 67 plus 53 is 120. Well, the subject might mistakenly judge that to be false. Do we, do we then want to say that the intention of that sentence is false at relevant scenarios and that that sentence is not a priori? Or analytic, that seems to be the wrong way to go. I think one natural response at this point is to introduce a normative element to the account, or an idealized element to the account. Instead of defining intentions in terms of what subjects actually judge, define intentions of what they should judge, or in terms of idealized judgments, what they would judge if they were ideal, what they would judge on a certain ideal reflection. Now this has certain costs. It means that there's no longer a straightforward naturalization or reduction on the, uh, on the table. At least we'll, we'll get such a reduction only to the extent that we have a naturalization or a reduction of the relevant notion of idealization, ideal reflection, or the relevant normative notion. Still, I think we've got a pretty good grip in many cases on these idealized and normative notions. So this can still be invoked to introduce a kind of epistemological grounding of the relevant semantic notions. And that's certainly what one would do on the scrutability framework. A second problem, a second issue, is that uh, in recent philosophy, you know, at least since uh, Kripke's naming and necessity in the early 1970s, it's been widely taken that, although it is possible to associate intentions with expressions, the association of intentions with expressions is not something you can do a priori Rather, it's determined a posteriori. So, the, so take an expression like Hesperus and Phosphorus, which you might have thought a priori had distinct meanings. Well, if it turns out that Hesperus and Phosphorus are identical, they're both the, uh, they're both the planet Venus, then the intention of Hesperus is actually picks out the planet Venus in all worlds, as does the intention of Phosphorus. These intentions are only determined a posteriori since they're not the kind of things you get a priori access to by this kind of procedure. Well, I think the response to this, I think, by now, should be fairly predictable. The intentions which matter for our purposes just behave in a slightly different way. These intentions are defined by considering scenarios as epistemic possibilities and say, OK, well, consider a scenario, PQTI, such that the morning star and the evening star are distinct. And then say, if that world is actual, is Hesperus phosphorus, and it looks like the rational thing to say for a canonical user of Hesperus and Phosphorus is, if that world is actual, Hesperus is not phosphorus. I mean, the Kripkean claim is about a counterfactual. In uh, in a world of that character, would Hesperus be phosphorus? And one says one says different things about these counterfactuals, but within the uh, within the epistemological framework of scrutability, I think there's no particular objection to the claim that Hesperus is phosphorus. Hesperus is not phosphorus is scrutable from such a description. So the intentions you get, for those of you who know a bit about two-dimensional semantics, the intentions you get out of, out of this defined in this epistemological way is akin to what I've called a primary intention, whereas the other kind is akin to what I've called a secondary intention. Those details don't matter too much here. Just focus on the epistemological character of scrutability, and the, uh, the Kripkean objection doesn't quite arise. Third objection that runs reasonably deep, well, what are these possible cases, and in what vocabulary Are they to be specified? Well, I think within the scrutability framework, there's a natural response here. These possible cases should be specified as maximal specifications within a generalized scrutability base. So I talked about a scrutability base as a base, a compact, minimal base, um, able to generate truth of sentences in the actual world. A generalized scrutability base is one that does this for arbitrary sentences, true or false, as long as they're epistemically possible, not just for the actual world, but for all kinds of epistemically possible scenarios as well. If you have the generalized scrutability thesis on the table saying there is such a base, so that for every epistemically possible sentence, it's scrutable from specifications within such a base, you can then use that base to define the vocabulary for describing these scenarios. Then, so for example, in light of all this, what the scrutability framework suggests is we could define the intention of an expression e, or the primary intention, if you like, as a function that maps scenarios to extensions. It maps a scenario, w, a scenario w to what the subject ideally should judge the extension of e to be, under the supposition that d is actually true, where d is a canonical specification of w, that is a specification of w in the language of a generalized scrutability base. So if we just pretend that all these specifications are like those PQTI sentences I mentioned. You know, well, in this, if PQTI, then, yeah, the extension of E is such and such. But if PQTI star, some other specification, then the extension of E is such and such. Now, so you'll get, prima facie, you'll get some kind of intention out of this. Okay, there's still a few residual issues which a Quinean might want to raise. First is the issue that the account seems to assume meaning and conceptual constancy, at least for the basic vocabulary, roughly the PQTI vocabulary here. So there's no account of conceptual change versus conceptual constancy for that vocabulary. And indeed, we need to—it looks like we need to assume a notion of constancy there. So Quine, um, it's again, uh, it's not always appreciated that Quine responded to Carnap's uh, arguments in meaning and synonymy in natural language, and his response is really the, uh, the central arguments of his book Word and Object in terms of the indeterminacy of translation, where he basically says, if we're trying to apply this kind of naturalistic procedure to figure out what a subject expressions really mean, we've got to interpret all of the expressions at once. We can't privilege some canonical special um, base vocabulary. And if we do that, then there's going to be problems for the Carnapian account. So for present purposes, let's just say, it looks like Carnap has to assume meaning and conceptual constancy there. That may be problematic. Second, of course, there's a huge idealization involved. We've already talked about that. And third is the question, key question, do we have to use the notion of the a priori in characterizing this account? And one very natural way to use the scrutability framework here, one would do it using a priori scrutability. And one would require that these conditionals, if D, then S, be a priori. That's something I've done in some other work. OK, well, that's nice, but then... What's happened here, we've basically ended up using the a priori to defend the a priori. Not obvious how far that gets us. If the answer to that third question is yes, if one does have to bring in the a priori here, then I think what's happened is, well, we've made some progress. We've analysed the Quinean phenomena of holding true and revisability on non-Quinean terms, showing they're compatible with substantive notions of analyticity or a priori. But we haven't broken out of the Quinean circle. If the answer to question three, on the other hand, is no, we can analyze these things without the a priori, then we've gone further to break out of the Quinean circle, potentially grounding a notion of conceptual change without assuming these notions. And that would be, I think, fairly reasonably significant progress. Now, I think that what I've actually said in the, uh, in the previous talks actually offers some hope of a framework that answers no to this question. That is uh, some hope of a at least suggests a way of defining these intentions without bringing in the notion of the a priori. After all, I I defended the a priori scrutability thesis, which grounded these conditionals in the notion of the a priori, but I also defended the conditional scrutability thesis, that all sentences are scrutable from these PQTI sentences in a sense that didn't involve invoke the a priori at all, and I argued there was a deep link between those two. So that suggests that you might try to define intentions without the a priori using conditional scrutability. For example, the primary intention of S for a subject is true at a scenario W if and only if the idealized rational conditional probability P star S given D for the subject is high, where D is a canonical specification of W. So that is, roughly, these intentions are now defined in terms of rational conditional judgments with no, no particular invocation of the a priori. And I think that's actually, um, that's actually not a bad place to get to in this project. But it's not actually going to be directly what I pursue in what follows. If you, if you went this way, then I think we'd get around question three. We still have the idealization. We still have to worry about the base vocabulary. and could get somewhere. But I think there's a way we can do even better. Actually, when I first started writing this paper, and this uh, this chapter of the project, I was really only concerned to do the fairly weak thing, to make the case that the a priori at least was compatible with the Quinean data and to defend the a priori on its own terms. And it was only on reflection that it came to see to me, actually, one can do, I think, a fair amount better than that. There are ways to get inroads into the Quinean circle, first by using this notion of, first by using the conditional scrutability thesis and conditional probability, but second, as I'll pursue in what follows, in in an even more... Straightforward way. So here I'll get to the uh, to the more straightforward way, um, which doesn't. So what, what I'm going to do in the following is to give an alternative analysis of these cases, of these of these cases, in terms of conditional judgments and conditional probabilities. But this will just be a broadly Bayesian approach using conditional probabilities, hypotheses, and evidence. And I'm not going to require this rather elaborate framework of intentions, scenarios, and a priori throughout. One advantage of doing things this way is, well, first of all, we don't need the big idealization, huge specifications of scenarios which ordinary subjects can't handle. It can also, I think, ha- help to at least some extent with the issue of canonical specifications. We don't need canonical specifications of, of scenarios, as well as with the third issue about the a priori. So I think this kind of falls out of where you would get if you went through the conditional scrutability thesis, but it's in some ways more straightforward. It doesn't require so much um, Apparatus. So what I'll do then is assume a broadly Bayesian framework on which sentences, S and T, are associated for subjects at times with unconditional credences, you know, probability of S, probability of T, and conditional c- credences, probability of S given T. Like right now, my credence that it's raining outside is quite low, so P it's raining outside, it's maybe 005 who knows, when you're in England, anything could happen? Um, probability that people are carrying umbrellas outside is also quite low, something like 0.05, two. But my conditional credence, that people are carrying umbrellas outside, given that it's raining outside, is really pretty high. Um, likewise, I'll assume the standard Bayesian principle of conditionalization. If a subject has a certain credence, S given E, at time T1, where E is an evidence sentence, specifies certain evidence, And then the subject goes on to acquire total evidence specified by the evidence sentence E between T1 and T2. Then the subject's credence P2 in S at time T2 should be equal to the conditional credence P1 of S given E at time T1. So if at time T1 you think that, you know, it's very likely that if Conditional on the claim that it's raining, you think it's very likely that people are carrying umbrellas, and then in between T1 and T2, you discover that it's raining, then you should conclude, and if that's your total relevant evidence, then you should conclude at T2 that it's very likely people um, are carrying umbrellas, standard Bayesian principle of conditionalization. So now let's go back to that Fred case. All bachelors are tidy. Let E be the total relevant evidence that Fred acquires between T1 and t and t2 for example that there's a 25 evidence to the effect that there's a 25 year old unmarried male with such and such a living situation or maybe more basic evidence from which one can draw that conclusion now the question is within this framework the diagnostic question is what is at time t1 what is Fred's conditional probability in B given E? At time T1, before Fred has acquired this evidence, what's his conditional probability that all bachelors are tidy given that that evidence obtains? Well, again, we'll have prefigured and post versions of the cases. In the prefigured version of the case, P1 of B given E is high. Then Fred's accepting B in light of E can be seen as standard updating of belief by conditionalization. In the post-figured version of the case, though, Fred's probability in B given E at T1 is low. Fred thinks conditional on there being such dirty bachelors in apartments, then probably all bachelors are untidy. Then Fred acquires E as total relevant evidence, but still accepts B. Well, this is a violation of the Bayesian principle of conditionalization. Now, there are circumstances where violations of conditionalization can occur. One is when E is not the total relevant evidence. But I think for present purposes, we can stipulate that it is. Um, Second, it can occur when the subject is not fully rational at stage one or at stage two. But I think for present purposes, we can stipulate rationality. It's no news to anyone that revisability can happen in cases of irrationality. Quine clearly needs rational revisability for his purposes. A third circumstance in which violations, such violations can happen is when the meaning or the content of the sentence B changes between the relevant stages. Um, where the sentence just means one thing at one time and means another thing at another time. When that happens, it's totally unsurprising you'd get violations of conditionalization. And that is what I think is the relevant kind of violation for our purposes. One way to bring this out is to formulate conditionalization in terms of sentences. Sometimes it's just formulated in terms of propositions or sets, in which case it works straightforwardly. But if you formulate it in terms of sentences, I'd say uh, it's a bit more complicated. Could so we formulate it in terms of sentences? Here's one formulation. If the subject is fully irrational, and if the subject acquires total evidence specified by sentence E between T1 and T2, and if the content of sentence S does not change between t1 and uh, t2, then the probability, the credence, subject's credence in S at t2, is equal to the subject's conditional credence in S given e at t1. So here we need an extra rider that's it. not present on propositional formulations of the thesis. If the content of sentence S doesn't change between t1 and t2, that's what requires basically you get the corresponding, the proposition or the set, stays the same. So, given that formulation of conditionalization for sentences, then we can use this, in a way, as a diagnostic for cases of conceptual change. Given a sentence S that's rationally held true, come what may, in that Quinean way, in light of potentially conflicting evidence E, well, there are two cases. Case one, the initial conditional probability in S given E is low. Then the subject acquires E, and they accept S all the same well that will be a violation of conditionalization and that will correspondingly be a a case of conceptual change. If P of S given E is initially high on the other hand, then that will be a prefigured case and this needn't be a case of conceptual change. So this gives us, this analysis in terms of conditionalization gives us some independent grip on the distinction between cases involving conceptual change and those that don't involve conceptual change. In effect, What Quine, I think, really needs to do is to, you know, if Quine wanted to establish that every sentence can be held true, come what may, without conceptual change or irrationality, which really, in a certain sense, is what Quine needs to do. Quine would, in effect, need to argue that for all sentences S and all potential evidence E, the uh, probability of S given E is high, or at least is not low. But this is obviously false. I mean, I think how one gets, gets at this depends on exactly how the Quinean thesis is formulated. It sure looks like Quine is arguing that for all subjects and for all sentences, if they want to, they can hold on to that sentence in light of, of any forthcoming evidence. I think that would require something like this thesis. But that claim is just obviously false, from within a, at least from within a Bayesian framework. So that suggests to me that it's not true that any sentence can be held true, come what may, without conceptual change or irrationality. So what's going on here? I think what's really going on here, apart from the technical details, is there's a kind of constitutive connection between rational inference and conceptual constancy. If we've got a principle of rational inference, like if A and if A then B, then B, a diachronic principle of rational inference, which we specify using sentences or other vehicles, a, where A and B are sentences or other vehicles, then anyone who violates it diachronically for, sen- for sentences A and B without change in the meaning of A or B is irrational. Likewise, anyone who rationally violates it is engaged in conceptual change. So we've got an underlying link between rational inference, conceptual constancy. I think that's what's really doing the work here. Okay, so so far I've given a Bayesian, this Bayesian analysis of a case of, uh, of Quine's argument from holding true. Next I'll get to the argument from revisability, which I think in some ways is a somewhat more serious challenge. So here let's take as our paradigmatic ag- example of Quine's argument from revisability a case from Hilary Putnam. Let's see, be the sentence, all cats are animals. On the face of it, this might seem paradigmatically analytic. True by definition. True in virtue of meaning. it seem paradigmatically a priori. One could know, independent of experience, that this is true with justification. Independent of experience. But uh, Putnam argues this sentence is actually revisable. That E, specify evidence, confirming that the furry, apparently feline creatures that inhabit our houses are actually remote-controlled robots from Mars. Well, the other creatures that we see are all organic and have the kind of biological structure that we typically take them to have. Putnam argues that if we discovered that E obtains, we'd actually reject C. We would then say, no, cats are not animals. You know, dogs are animals, kangaroos are animals, but cats are not animals, they're robots. So he argues cat- all cats are animals is, in fact, revisable. So let's apply the current framework to this example. The diagnostic question here is well, before we get that evidence, what is our initial conditional probability in C given E? I mean, I take it we haven't gotten that evidence yet, but um, we, we can consider our conditional judgment conditional on the claim that that surprising evidence obtains are all cats animals or not? So, I think it's, it's at least arguable that in this case, um, the initial conditional probability for C given E is low. After all, Putnam gives us reasons to accept that conditional now, even before we've got the evidence. It makes a pretty convincing case, I think, that you know, conditional on, um, on the evidence being that way, oh, cats, it turns out, surprisingly, are not animals. Well, anyway, there's two ways it can go. If it goes that way, then this is what we might call a prefigured judgment. Compatible with conditionalization. In this case, I think what we should say is that C is not analytic and not a priori, certainly not conclusively a priori to start with. That is, at least not in a sense that requires the possibility of certainty on ideal a priori reflection. It turns out, well, some chance, it's false. So it's not analytical or conclusively a priori. Interesting surprise, but not obviously such a challenge. If P1 of C given E is high, on the other hand, but then we reject C upon obtaining the the total relevant evidence E, then this will be a post-figured judgment that violates conditionalization. So this will come out by our current criteria as a case of conceptual change or irrationality. So to maintain within, at least within the Bayesian framework, that any statement is open to revision without conceptual change or irrationality. Quine, I think, needs something like the following claim. The claim that for any sentence S and for any subject, there is some possible evidence E such that the subject's rational conditional probability, P1 of S given E, is low. That is, you know, there's some evidence that ought to lead the subject to reject the sentence. Now, this claim, I think, is not as obviously false as the analogous claim about holding true, come what may. I think it's much more of a viable and somewhat plausible, at least challenging, claim. Still, it's not totally clear what the uh, what the grounds are for accepting it. I mean, one thing, a few observations here. One thing w- worth noting is that Quine's official support for his revisability thesis involves underdetermination, ancillary claims, our freedom to make and change these ancillary claims, and so on. But this sort of revision often involves violations of conditionalization, as we've seen. So that kind of support doesn't um, support the claim about conditional probability. I'm actually inclined to think there's two, two sort of strands in Quine's arguments in two dogmas, and certainly two strands in the Quineans who have followed him. One is what we might call the, the pragmatist strand that, uh, that really leans on our freedom to make certain changes, for example, to adjust certain ancillary claims. And that strand, what we call the pragmatist Quinean strand, I think involves equal endorsement of the argument from holding true and the argument from revisability. I'm inclined to think that's the less um, compelling strand, although I think Quine himself is, is if anything, more of a... more... um, his arguments in two dogmas, at least, more closely suggest the pragmatist strand. The other strand we might call the empiricist strand is roughly an argument from, you know, upon getting certain evidence, we ought to revise certain sentences. This doesn't so much relying on our freedom to do different things. It's rather Given the nature of evidence and, uh, and evidential support and so on, there's certain evidence in light of which we ought to revise certain sentences. This is what we might call the empiricist strand. We should always be open to this new evidence. Or the, we make it the case that we ought to revise in certain ways. Given that strand, the empiricist strand, I think actually the, uh, the revisability argument is, uh, is a much stronger argument than the, uh, from that perspective than the, uh, than the holding true argument. And it's interesting, I think, that many of the later Quineans, like, like Putnam himself and Harmon and others, seem to, seem to be really following up the empiricist strand in these arguments rather than the pragmatist strand. Second, a second observation here is that almost any claim could be true. Almost any claim could be rationally rejected given testimony of an apparent epistemic superior. You know, if God comes down and tells you, you know, actually 2 plus 2 is 5, or if, you know, Kurt Gödel tells you if Femme's last theorem is false, then okay, maybe it's rational to, uh, to believe them. Still, but that a claim can be rejected in this way is, I think, no evidence that it's not a priori, that it's not justifiable, um, on ideal rational, an ideal rational reflection. Likewise, you don't, get, you don't obviously get ideally rational revisability out of this. You get rational revisability for non-ideal agents like us. So that's not, I think, not quite to the relevant point. Third observation is this strategy gets no purchase against certain material conditionals of the form if d then s, where d specifies a full scenario, complete with total. Evidence. And these, of course, are the conditionals whose a priority is diagnostic and constitutive of intentions being a certain way within the scrutability framework that I've, uh, that I've been suggesting. So these are just conditionals based on very, very big antecedents. I think you can make the case that for conditionals like that, there's no way to get the relevant kind of Quinean revisability. Either the evidence is compatible with D or it's incompatible. If it's incompatible with D, then, well, the material conditional still comes out. Just say you're initially inclined to endorse the conditional, what evidence could make you reject it? Either the evidence is is incompatible with D, in which case D is false, and the material conditional comes out true, or it's compatible with D, in which case you get the kind of evidence specified in D all along, and the conditional will still come out true, at least there's no reason for your later judgment to be any different from your earlier judgment. Fourth. And perhaps most, um, most relevant, even if Putnam is right about this, even if the empiricist Quinean is right about this, that any sentence is, is revisable in this way, this strategy will still allow us to use these conditionals to define intentions, which can serve as a relevant sort of meaning, with a corresponding analytic-synthetic distinction. At worst, it will follow that, that few statements are analytic. You know, All cats are animals will come out. Oh, turn out there's a few scenarios at which it's false. OK, how interesting. Um, still, we're going to have our principal distinction between analytic and synthetic sentences and between conceptual change and conceptual constancy, and we'll be entitled to the corresponding semantic notions. So corresponding to this distinction I mentioned between the pragmatist Quinians and the empiricist Quinians is roughly one between what you might think is the left Quinians and the right Quinians. The left Quinians are the ones who think that... Um, that uh, you know, there is just no distinction here between the analytic and the synthetic. And the right Quineans are the ones who think that, uh, well, there is a distinction, but uh, but the very few sentences are analytic. And I think the um, the, the Putnam-Harman style arguments tend to suggest the uh, the right Quinean conclusion that um, that uh, few statements are analytic, but um, at best. But I think that should be seen as only really a very limited challenge to the Carnapian framework. In any case, moral. Conditionalization, once again, gives us a grip on the distinction between revisions that involve conceptual change and those that don't. Okay, so in the next section, I list a bunch of objections. For uh, for reasons of time, I I won't go over these, but uh, you should feel free to uh, to raise them in discussion. To save time, you can just say, objection two. Uh, I have objection five. Maybe there will even be some others. Okay, so now now I'll conclude. So I think if what I've said is right, well, Quine is right that any statement can be held true, come what may, and that no statement is immune to revision. But these phenomena are quite compatible with a robust analytic synthetic distinction and with a robust notion of meaning. Quine is not right that any statement can be held true, come what may, without conceptual change or irrationality, and likewise for revision. I think we can pin down the distinction between cases involving conceptual change or irrationality either using the scrutability framework in the way I suggested in the middle or using the Bayesian analysis that I've been over just now. So I think, again, you can see this response to Quine on two potential levels, either defending the a priori on its own grounds or on partly independent grounds. The first more conservative approach is to rely on the a priori scrutability thesis Presupposing a notion of a priori and characterizing the conditionals, and arguing that such a framework can at least accommodate all of Quine's data. This doesn't provide an independent grounding for the notion of the a priori, though it delimits its grounding role. But for the same reasons that most philosophers reject Quine's arguments early in Two Dogmas, no such independent grounding is required. Second, we could see all this as defending the a priori on partly independent grounds. If we use the Bayesian analysis, or perhaps the analysis in terms of conditional scrutability, we need only assume a notion of conditional probability and of rationality. This assumes some normative notions. Maybe Quine himself would question those, but certainly many Quinians don't. But this doesn't obviously assume the notion of a priori in any case. So this gives us some independent purchase on the cases. In effect, what's going on here is that constitutive connections between rational inference and conceptual change are used to make inroads into the Quinean circle. Now, I don't think we want to make the claim too strong. You, know, you might think, okay, given all this, maybe we could use all this for a reductive analysis of the notion of the a priori, to ground that notion in wholly independent terms. So, here's something that you might be tempted to suggest, having seen what's gone on here, follow Carnap in terms of defining a priori in terms of necessity of intentions. Okay, so you might be tempted to define an a priori statement, or at least a conclusively a priori statement, as a statement S for which the ideal conditional probability of S given D is 1, or is high maybe, for all scenario specifications D. You could try to do that, but I think there would be some fairly serious residual issues. Perhaps the most important uh, residual issue is can one define the relevant class of scenario specifications without using the notion of a priori? Or do you have to define them as, for example, the a priori consistent scenario specifications? Second, can we deal with potential exceptions to the thesis due to scenarios, for example, involving misleading evidence or cognitive deficits? Third, could the notion of ideal, conditional probability be understood in a way wholly independent of the a priori? My own view is that the second and third, I think there are. Satisfactory things that can be said in response to the second and the third here. So, those aren't, I think, fundamental obstacles. I think the first here may be the most serious obstacle to at least trying to give an account of the extension of the notion of a priori without using the notion of a priori. Still, even without a reductive account of a priori, we've got enough of an antecedent grasp, I think, on the relevant notions that these, these notions at least provide an illuminating tool for analysis. And our grip, I think, on these principles of conditional rational inference, these diachronic principles, helps us, in effect, to diagnose cases of conceptual change. So I take all this to suggest, then, in conclusion, that uh, Quine's arguments from revisability and from holding true do not, in fact, threaten the analytic synthetic distinction or the a priori, a posteriori distinction as seriously as one might have thought they threatened it and that, in fact, the scrutability framework, as I've developed it, has perhaps some promise in vindicating a broadly Carnapian approach to meaning. Thank you very much.